So I want to I talk about uh, interbeing or interdependence. And I'm realizing that our last um, exploration actually um, covered uh, most of the principles. <laughs> so that where we were going with the different issues, we could see how it would be very important to bring in mindfulness and action in some ways. It's also having to do with establishing the conditions for safety, you know, for the integrity of the group and what happens when the integrity of the group seems to be shifted a little bit and what do we do with that. It's really, in some ways, a safety issue. In some ways, mindfulness and action has to do with clarifying intention or motivation. Uh, a healthy amount of opening to pain and suffering and uh, taking care of myself, I take care of the world, the sense of interbeing, um, and exploring how we work with equanimity as well as opening to what's happening. Committed action, non-attachment to outcome. What does that mean in this context? And lastly, not knowing but keep going. So, so in a way they're all there and I I won't even get into the request that we had for five people from that retreat to join this retreat. (laughs) (laughs) That was Garbanzo Bean. (laughs) So, not true. So, the... We, we take the notion of interbeing from Thich Nhat Hanh and it really has to do with the sense of interdependence, of connection, and it really is one whole way of seeing what the work is that we uh, do on ourselves or do on the cushion or in the world. That one whole way of talking about the spiritual path could be talked about in terms of interbeing that in a way we can see the spiritual path in a lot of ways. We can see it as opening to love or to wisdom. We can see it as, in Buddhist terms, as involving the Eightfold Path where we develop in ethics and meditation and um, wisdom dimensions where we work out livelihood issues and so forth. We can see the spiritual path in a lot of ways. one of the most beautiful ways is seeing that we move from a sense of a more constricted and separate self, sense of that, separate and independent self, into a very different vision of who we are and what life is, that we move from maybe a starting point that we all carry to a certain extent, uh, in which we see ourselves as separate, we feel separate from the world, from others in some way, and we, in a way, try to manipulate the world so to have pleasant experiences and avoid unpleasant experiences. And there's part of that that's, that's there in all of our experience. And the way that that way of being gets transformed is by moving to much more of a sense of this vast interdependence that we share with others and that even extends even to our, the inner aspects of our being. 
that we are all this um, complex inner cosmos, there's a complex outer cosmos, and there can be a sense of the um, deep interpenetration of self and world, and that we can come more to feeling ourselves as deeply in relationship all the time and moving away from that more separate and opposed and almost independent way of approaching the world. And this principle of interbeing or interdependence helps us move towards that way of being. And it's a way of being that we know from different moments in our own experience, and that, that really is the, um, in many ways, a reference point for our, our learning and our development. It's also, they're also the basic spiritual teachings of virtually every tradition are about something like this, the sense of interdependence, or it could be expressed as the, the deep seeing into the oneness of life or the ways that we, um, that we share, in some ways we share the same mind and heart as others, as all others. And we know that maybe at certain moments, certain moments when we feel that um, unity of experience, in which we feel our separateness um, not there either at all or in the same way, we may feel this sometimes in nature. We may feel this sometimes when we're in love with another person and somehow the boundaries are no longer present in the same way. And we can feel this on the meditation cushion when we can feel the usual boundaries are not um, are dissolving. One way that this gets expressed is by this notion of interdependence or interbeing. And it's um, something that Thich Nhat Hanh expresses very beautifully, and he's really a teacher of interbeing, of interdependence. I wanted to read his understanding of interbeing. Interbeing is a new word in English. I hope it will be accepted. We have talked about the many and the one, and the one containing the many. In one sheet of paper, we see everything else, the cloud, the forest, the logger. I am, therefore you are. You are, therefore I am. That is the meaning of the word interbeing. We inter-are, he says. And I remember when I first uh, met Thich Nhat Hanh, which was in 1987, I went to, I was, um, I had been, I was near the end of a cycle of seven years and um, living in Kentucky and rural Ohio and teaching there. And I went to my first uh, national meeting of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and it was right before uh, a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, who I had read some, but I had never, never met it was, a, it was a retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in uh, Massachusetts. And the people there, the, who had, were longtime people at the retreat center, actually were a little shocked by Thich Nhat Hanh's um, retreat because 
the maximum meditations were 20 minutes long. He would give two-hour Dharma talks, which I'm not going to do. <laughs> and he would, and there'd be talking. And it was a very informal kind of environment, very different than, and some of the long-term meditators, I could tell, were, were judgmental. They said, this is the soft stuff. This is, this is not the real practice. We know what the real practice is. It's being grim and serious and silent for long hours. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but... And for myself, having um, experience, having been at um, IMS for... and done a lot of retreats there for about 10 years, for me, being with Thich Nhat Hanh was about learning about interdependence. And it really was a very powerful experience because he would, he would, um, for our talks, he would, he would sit with us and it was also half, uh, it was about half Vietnamese and half, um, half people born in Vietnam and half um, people born in the U.S., um, some of whom were, were Vietnamese uh, descent. And there were a lot of children and it was the um, level of emotion was very high for me and I think for many people. You know, at one point we saw a film which had footage a little bit like what we saw in the film the other night about, you know, with the, the bombs dropping out of the B-52s and the scenes in the villages. And it was just uh, heartrending to be there with the um, young Vietnamese children right around us. And, and there was, so there was much more of a sense of um, a kind of learning about interdependence and interconnection and how we were deeply connected. Thich Nhat Hanh would often begin a talk by gathering the children up in front of the uh, hall and he'd look over at them and maybe he'd hold up an orange and he would say, look at this orange. They would, they would look, <laughs> they'd look, and then he would say, can you see the cloud in the orange, where the orange trees were growing? And we'd go, yes, yes we can. <laughs> can you see the worms in the ground near the orange trees? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you see the, the truck that's bringing the oranges to the market? Oh, yeah. And he would go on like that, and it was like the whole retreat was about seeing interdependence and seeing connection and seeing in a different way. And it wasn't so much even about silence or about concentrated mind, but it was learning to see in a different way. And it brought a lot of resonance for me from the times when I had been really uh, writing a lot of poetry and uh, studying poetry. I had spent two summers at Naropa Institute you know, studying with, especially with Allen Ginsberg and with um, Ann Waldman and people like that. And there were just, I was totally in meditation poetry land for like two summers. And we would, the highlight was when I was part of Allen Ginsberg's um, orchestra and we, um, we performed before 800 people doing orchestral versions of um, Buddhist chants. <laughs> which were really fun and 
made a lot of the people nervous. <laughs> they wanted the poetry. And we started like with a half hour version of Gate, Gate, set to blues version. Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasam Gate, Bodhisvaha. Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasam Gate, Bodhisvaha. Gate, Gate. That's kind of a classic blues progression. And so. <laughs> And, and so during that time of poetry, um, we were having like, I don't know, I was writing poetry all the time. We we're having like five poetry readings a week. It was like the center of the poetry cosmos as far as I was concerned. And it's like I was, um, metaphors were coming out of my eyes like the whole summer, if you know what I mean. Um, it's like I was um, looking and Whatever was in my mind would connect with whatever was in the trees and other people, and there was just this vast web of connection. And that's how I was perceiving, especially during that summer. You know? And it was all in the interest of art and poetry and awakening. But it, was, um, it really told me about a different way of seeing. That was very powerful. You know, to see... French poet Baudelaire talks about the correspondences. You, some of you may know there's a famous poem called Correspondences in which we see the, um, we just live in this sense of the interconnection of um, objects and symbols rather than being quite so separate. Okay, I'm over here. Donald over here sees a tree over there, sees a, you know, a shoe over there. Kind of sometimes the way we, we um, experience things. And, and the sense of interbeing was really... Um, revolutionary, and it made me, um, I remembered that, um, being in a, about a seven-day retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, because it was just seeing interdependence more, more deeply the whole time. And I didn't miss the concentration one bit, particularly. <laughs> I, loved the, I loved that sense. It really felt like it was, because uh, you can get very self-centered in meditation. Have you, you know that, right? Can very, you know, can very. You know, I am here meditating and becoming selfless. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of an occupational hazard for meditators. <laughs> and, and so I wanted to talk a little further about really about uh, three aspects of cultivating the sense of interbeing. One is about. Uh, looking more closely at the ways that we form self. The second is cultivating a sense of the vast web of relationships with other objects and coming to see more in that way. And the third is really about seeing that larger web of relationships also in terms of our human world and the world of our human relationships and our society. And Diane is going to particularly take as a starting point a focus on one way that uh, comes up in the social realm of the ways that we tend to form, I am good, that person is bad, I'm here, that person's an enemy, you know, and that we, that we form enemies, opponents, and how do we work with that? So that's going to be an special starting point for, um, for the afternoon. So I won't go so much into that. So I'll, I want to go more into how we work with this on an individual level 
and then in terms we might say of a, a, a core relational level in the world. So it's very useful in our meditation, in our mindfulness practice, to start to see uh, more clearly, as I was suggesting in the guided meditation, how we form a sometimes fixated sense of self. And it's really not so much to judge ourselves about it, but just to notice, how do I form self-images? Oh, that was good, Donald, that was a good talk, or great joke, or whatever. How do we notice that commenting voice that says things about ourselves, that wants to look good, that wants to, or thinks that we look bad, that becomes self-conscious. And we all have that. It's not so much a problem, but part of this process of cultivating interbeing is to see that aspect of what uh, one of my mentors, Gil Fronsdell, calls selfing, the act of selfing, the way that we form me and mine and self and other, and to begin to notice that in our experience. There's a way in which that way of perceiving is deeply embedded in, certainly in the last few hundred years of Western culture. Martin Buber, who's a great uh, German-Jewish philosopher, he talked about the the way that we form an I-it relationship. I have meaning, the it, the object, is only there to serve my needs. You know, the object has no life of itself, and we can even have the, uh, other people become as if objects. They're only there to fit into my life, and if they don't do things quite right, I get upset. If they don't fit quite right, uh, you know, I have to try to make them work so they do what they should be doing in the scenario of my world. Right? And, that, and we know that. We know how we do that in various ways. One of my favorite examples of how the whole world gets turned into something almost like an it, something almost like generic. You know, the world gets turned into where every, you know, I mean, this is actually what, actually what capitalism does. Everything becomes a commodity or a possible commodity. I remember I spent a lot of time in the mountains in Virginia and I remember talking to someone who was seeing with this. He was, he was looking at the mountains and he was seeing trailer park. You know, just looking at the land and saying, wasn't seeing the trees, but just saying, oh, okay, we'll turn this into a trailer park. I remember being really struck because I was just, I was in a different, a different space. Or There's a way that we hardly even, sometimes when we're in this way of self and other, we hardly even see the objects of the world. We har- hardly even look at the trees. We don't hardly even notice anything. Everything is almost utilitarian, just a function satisfy what we think are our needs. And one of my favorite examples is, is in a film that's kind of a cult film. Some of you may know this. It's called uh, Repo Man. Does anyone know the film Repo Man? Okay. And one of my favorite scenes in this film, it, it stars Emilio Estevez. And there's this incredible scene in the film where he comes home. I'll try to say this with a straight face. He, come, he comes home. He's hungry. His parents are smoking marijuana and watching Christian evangelistic television. <laughs> and, and he says, uh, is there any dinner? That's a great straight face. Straight face. And 
they say, sure, son, it's in the pantry. And he goes to the pantry. <laughs> so he goes to the pantry and he takes out this um, can. This can is just labeled food. <laughs> Somehow that's very funny for me. <laughs> so, so, but, it, but it, there's actually, of course, it's very funny, but there's actually... It's actually incredibly sad, right? That there is um, there is a, there is a way in which um, this way of objectifying the world is something that is very um, culturally supported, and that we all do that to some extent. The Buddhist teaching was particularly on being really observant of how that self notion of self forms. And Diana was referring to the teaching that in the Pali language is called anatta, usually translated as not self. And it's not so much that there's a no self, but that the notion of there being this separate independent self is in a kind of an illusion that, that we get into. And a lot of the work of meditation is to look really carefully at the ways that this strong sense of a separate or independent self forms. To really be careful about that, to really notice as much as we can how that self is forming. So I would say that a core practice for developing a sense of interbeing is this practice of really inquiring into the very nature of the self, how we form oppositions, how we take credit for things, all the all the ways that the mind works. And again, it's not that we should be judgmental about doing this, but it's more the noticing quality and the noticing of how the self, that, that form of the self works. This is what one of the great Zen teachers, uh, Dogen, said about this work of looking at the self. He said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. Then in typical Zen style, he says, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and mind of others, drop away. He says in another passage, he says, when you ride in a boat and watch the shore, you might assume that the shore is moving. But when you keep your eyes closely on the boat, you can see that the boat moves. Similarly, if you examine myriad things with a confused body and mind, you might suppose that your mind and nature are permanent. When you practice intimately and return to where you are, it will be clear that nothing at all has unchanging self. And so it's really an invitation to, as Dogen says, to look at the self. And one of the ways, the second way I want to talk about that we do that is by doing what Dogen says. He says, when you, when you study the self, you actually op- learn how to open up to other things, to the world. 
to other beings more. And there's a this second way of cultivating interbeing or interdependence is by developing practices in which we work with that sense of interrelationship. So we might say that the first practice is sort of to, to study the ways that we separate. And the second kind of practice would be to more actively develop a sense of connection. One of the practices that I love a lot, which, which I try to do as much as I can, is a set of practices that I um, developed along with uh, Julie Wester, who teaches at Spirit Rock, uh, about 10 years ago. And we, we called the set of practices uh, Being with Ordinary Objects. And I want to um, invite us to just do uh, a few of these right now, because they're really interbeing exercises. And what they, what they do particularly is they give us some practices that help us to cut through the ordinary separation that we have in the ordinary kind of utilitarian way that we approach the world. So I'd like you to find an ordinary object somewhere near you. We have some extras up here. <laughs> <laughs> So it could be a piece of paper, it could be a piece of your clothing, it could be some, the rug, so it could be your watch. So just take um, an ordinary object right now. And the first, the first exercise is simply to be aware of the object in a sustained way. Normally, we actually are not very attentive. You know, we're often we're not attentive to the world. So take the object and just be with that object in ways that, uh, through your senses. So it might be to touch the object. to use your different senses to smell. This active attention, this open attention.
So this too is mindfulness practice. This is a way of really giving attention. It shows something, we might say, almost of the sacred nature of attention. To really bring attention, that it, it takes us out of that sense of separation. And for myself, it, it, it's been an important part of my own mindfulness practice to particularly to be with the natural world, to just sit. I've, I, when I first was meditating, I uh, spent several summers uh, living in the mountains in Virginia. And I would, a lot of time, I would just sit by the creek and listen to the sounds of the creek, like for an hour at a time, or listen to the wind. And it, it's a favorite part of my practice, really, just to do that. And it's, in a way, it opens us Beyond, it shows us that mindfulness can be very much, um, as it were, go to the outer so-called world as well as to the inner world. We can do that with objects. I think artists do this pretty much. Artists really <clears throat> work very much with that sense of really giving this very deep attention to, to objects. The second practice uh, with ordinary objects is to take that same object and to consider the web of causes that brought this object to you. So it's partly, this is an imaginative exercise. So be with the object and imagine it'll be much like the example of Thich Nhat Hanh with the orange. Can you imagine the web of causes and conditions that brought this object to you? Let's just do that now for a few minutes.
maybe just another minute with this practice of being with the object and looking into the, the different causes and conditions that brought it here. start to explore this sense of interbeing, as we may have been looking at the causes and conditions of the object, um, it's, it's actually um, can be very transformative and actually not always easy. That sometimes we may think of a sense of interdependence as the beauty of the orange and everything kind of sounds nice and it's a wonderful sense of interdependence. When I contemplate the causes and conditions of this plastic container, you know, I go to Iraq, right? Or it's not always very pretty. It can take us into um, a sense of interdependence that's, um, that's hard. You know, for example, I, I have a friend who is a curator of a museum in Chicago, and she did an exhibit on Chicago on, on, no, not on Chicago, on chocolate for the um, primarily intended for school children. And she looked into the causal web of chocolate. I wanted just to read you a little bit of this because I think part of our sense of interbeing can open us up to tremendous beauty and wonder, but some of it also takes us into this territory where there's suffering, where we start to see the larger social connections. And we also start to see our own, um, what shall we say, implication, involvement in the cycles. When we start seeing with the eyes of interbeing and interdependence, it's much harder to have this separate self where I'm here, good, and those bad people are doing something over there. Again, it's not to say that some people don't bear large amounts of responsibility, but take something like chocolate. And I'll just read this to you. Chocolate, like many tropical understory plants, is a shade crop. The cacao tree, which produces crops containing cacao beans, needs protection from the sun to thrive. Cacao trees only grow in tropical regions of Africa, South America, Asia, and Central America within 15 degrees of the equator. To increase the size of their farms, cacao farmers must clear out sections of the rainforest. About 90% of West Africa's rainforest, which produces 70% of all cacao, has already been destroyed. So, growing cacao beans. Once the cacao tree is taken out of its natural shady environment, it is plagued by pests and disease. To counter this, many sun plantation farmers depend on agrochemicals. Cacao has traditionally been one of the most pesticide-intensive crops in the world. Um, Yeah, there's a lot here. 
Some of these chemicals are absorbed by workers, others seep into the soil and absor- are absorbed by plants. So others are washed away where they enter water systems. The use in particular of lindane in cocoa production has been put at risk has put at risk the health of wildlife farmers and consumers. It has been linked to severe health problems from blood disorders to breast cancer. Harvesting. After a tree is three to five years old, it will finally start producing fruits. Once cacao beans pods mature and ripen, they are ready for harvesting. Each pod contains anywhere from 20 to 50 cream-colored beans. Approximately 400 beans are required to make one pound of chocolate. Harvesting must be done by hand and is a labor-intensive process. Because it takes so many people to raise and harvest cacao, labor issues have historically been a serious concern. In 2002, it was uncovered that 284,000 children worked in hazardous conditions in West Africa's cocoa industry, and some 2,500 were suspected to be trafficked as slaves each year. Packing. Once cacao beans have been fermented and dried, they are scooped into sacks and transported to shipping centers where they are sold. There has been recent discussion over the hydrocarbons in jute sacks, which can contaminate cacao beans. Even long before that, the sack had its own journey, where many raw materials, chemicals, and resources were were used to make the sack. Selling the cacao beans. Like many agricultural products, cacao is traded on the futures market. Farmers sell their crops through the coffee, sugar, and cocoa exchange. Farmers don't set prices and are dependent on the global marketplace. They are generally left in a a predicament and in a cycle of poverty. For a 60-cent chocolate bar, a farmer will see one cent. Once cacao have been sold, the 150 to 200 pound sacks of beans will make the long journey by ship, fueled by oil, of course. Manufacturing. Next is a lengthy task of processing the cacao into chocolate. This depends heavily on machine power, using electricity, and generating waste products, many which end up in waterways. In manufacturing a candy bar, it takes 11 different machines to clean, roast, winnow, grind, press, refine, conch, temper, mold, and wrap your chocolate bar. And there are byproducts for that, of course. Then there's sugar. Cacao and sugar mix in more ways than just a hot cup of uh, cocoa. Subsidizing sugar has encouraged an increase in sugar production. Sugar subsidies lead to the direct conversion, led to the direct conversion, for example, of 500 acres of Everglades wetland to sugarcane production. Pesticides flowed into the watershed. Vertebrates in the Everglades have fallen in the last half century 75 to 95%. Now the chocolate gets to the store and the manufacturing and packaging also includes plastics, film, aluminum, foil, and paper products. By the time the chocolate bar arrives at the store, it will have made one more trip, this time by truck, where the chocolate is eagerly purchased, unwrapped, and eaten. So that's, um, that's pretty intense to, to listen to, I know. And we can, we can talk about it in just a moment and explore it. But the question is, what, how do we develop that sense of 
seeing interdependence where it is. What does it mean in terms of actually of our world, of knowing those connections? And of course they're not all, I mean, they're not all, it's not all the negative, just as it's not all the positive, it's it's a mix. But what would it, how would uh, our understanding and our action change if we could see something like that web of web of interbeing with the different parts of our world? What would, what, would, what would it look like? How would we, how do we actually develop those kind of eyes, we might call it the eyes of wisdom that can see into interbeing and really notice in that way? And I'll just end by saying that for me it's actually been also very important to do that in terms of human relationships because the kind of vista that opens up to me in my own mind when I contemplate that, it's kind of like those shooting metaphors or Thich Nhat Hanh's orange. It's almost like can you imagine that we're just this vast web of causes and conditions with every object that we see having its own web going into history, into its own past, into its interactions with others, so that reality is much more this incredible mosaic of interpenetrating objects and beings. The Chinese Buddhists particularly were fascinated by this, you know, like I was with those inter- and Diana with those interpenetrating domains. And the Chinese Buddhist philosophers just got, re- I think, really wonderfully carried away by this image of the interpenetrating. And they saw reality as this vast net. One of the metaphors that was used was the, me- the metaphor of Indra's net. There's this vast net that really is what reality is. It's like everything is interpenetrating and everything has this little jewel where every object has a jewel where it reflects the whole rest of the web. And I'll just read a few quotations from some of the Chinese um, Buddhist uh, teachers. This, is, this was actually particularly developed in one school called the Hua Yen School in probably, I don't know, probably at least a thousand years ago. They really worked it up a lot. I kind of imagine them sitting around contemplating interbeing and coming up with these metaphors. And here I'll just read two uh, very short, pithy senses of their understanding. This is one by Master Tu, tu Shun. Four principles. First, one in one. Second, all in one. Third, one in all. Fourth, all in all. Another way that this was said by the same uh, teacher. First, one includes all and enters all. Second, all includes one and enters one. Third, one includes one and enters one. Fourth, all includes all and enters all. They interpenetrate one another without any obstruction. And to me, it's extremely helpful to bring that way of understanding to seeing the world. And for me it's been especially useful to see, to see in that way when I've been involved with conflicts. You know, I, I particularly remember one situation which happened a few years ago where I was involved with uh, um, an administrator who teaches at the uh, school where I also uh, teach. Uh, I won't, I won't name the school to protect the confidentiality. <laughs> to protect the guilty. Um, but, but I was finding myself um, 
in an interaction where, from my point of view, I would ask for something to be done that I expect should have been done, or make a request, and I would um, almost invariably with this one person have something very difficult always arise. You know, he wouldn't return the call, he wouldn't answer emails, you know, uh, he would, um, when he would, it was often something that just seemed, according to me, designed to sabotage whatever I was working on. And this just didn't happen once, it happened like 40 times. And I would notice that my tendency was to get upset. (laughs) And to um, be somewhat somewhat blaming and somewhat polarize it into he's bad and I'm just innocently making a request and he should be doing it. There was some kind of polarization happening. And I remember it maybe was the 20th or 30th time that something like this happened. And I noticed myself getting upset. And at a certain point, see, this is where mindfulness works by the, what I call the exhaustion principle. You see, you, it's not like you see things the first, second, third time and you can, oh yeah, okay. It's like the deeper stuff, you see it over and over and over again and you go through the same stuff over and over and over again. At a certain point you say, duh, or <laughs> something, something like that. You, and in my case, I see, okay, I've, interacted in a certain way, and he's responded or reacted, whatever it was, in the same way. And this is the kind of dance that we're doing. And it's happening the same time that it's happened 30 other times. And I have a choice whether I want to polarize in the same way, or get angry or upset or judge in the same way, or, you know, even though I, all the time I was using my best meditative tools to work with the situation, still there was something arising. And that, with that time when it happened, somehow I started to see this vast web of interbeing that uh, made some sense of my situation. I could see, I could look into myself and see all the causes and conditions which would lead me to be upset or angry. I could look at, at the whole system and see how he was incredibly overworked and it was a systemic problem and he was um, also maybe he wasn't so responsible. You know, there there may be things in his own character which were leading him to. Or there was a whole, you know, he has his whole whole psychology, right? He has his whole psychology. We could go into his past. We could go into his conditioning. We could look at that. We could see the larger system working. We could see my own conditioning working. We could see my my own history of what I do when people don't do what I think they should do, and so forth. And at a certain point, I started seeing this large, large web of causes and conditions that I was involved with, that he was involved with. There was a system that goes off into culture and history and all that. And there was something in me which just relaxed and was not reactive in the same way. It doesn't mean that I didn't act and, say, and call him back and say, um, do you remember when I called you that time? Or do you remember those, I, you know, those one or two emails I sent when there might have been 20? And I just you know, try to be diplomatic and so forth. But it, didn't, it, it's, it doesn't mean that I didn't act. But the change in perspective was very powerful. The seeing that vast web 
changed things. And again, it didn't lead to passivity necessarily. I could see the vast web and I could still act, but there was some kind of understanding that was really deepened. And I think that's, um, that's the quality of developing a sense of interbeing that we're really pointing to. How can we see ourselves, see the world, see the problems we're involved with, the conflicts, the world situation, the objects we use with the eyes of interbeing? And how do we do that? How do we cultivate that sense? And how would that change the way we are in the world? So I'll leave you with those questions that we can have some time to explore. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.